Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 13 of the 2017-2018 curling season. This week we chat with Brett Gallant of Team Gushu about his team's victory at the Masters Grand Slam. Our road to the trial series continues with this week's guest Steve Laycock, who discusses the impact of last season's unexpected lineup change and the struggles his team has had early on this season. And in a From the Hack exclusive, we interview Catherine Henderson, the CEO of Curling Canada, covering topics such as the Olympics, funding, recent announcements by the World Curling Federation, and several Curling Canada initiatives. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. Before we get to our first guest, Brett Gallant, here is our one-minute recap of all the curling action from Week 12. At the Masters, the second stop on the Pinty's Grand Slam of Curling, Team Gushu completed an undefeated week by winning the final 8-4 over Team Adine for their second Grand Slam title of the season. In the women's event, Team Jones won their eighth career Grand Slam by defeating fellow Manitobans Team Anderson by a score of 6-5. The popular Davy Jones of Mayflower cash bill took place in Halifax on the weekend. Team Brothers defeated Team Breen 7-4 in the women's final, while 2004 Briar champion Mark Dacey and his team defeated Team Stevens 6-2 in the men's final. There were two events in Ontario on the weekend, with Team Howard defeating Team Clark of the U.S. 5-3 in the Huron Repographics Oil Heritage Classic in Sarnia. Meanwhile, in Whitby, Team Fleury defeated Team Vrana of Sweden in the final of the Gord Carroll Curling Classic. In a challenger event in Latvia, Team Jentsch of Germany defeated Team Stern of Switzerland 5-3 in the women's final, while Team Sterne of Denmark defeated Team Hess of Switzerland 4-3 in the men's final. And finally, in the mixed doubles cup in Geising, Germany, the Russian duo of Brizgolova and Krushelnitsky defeated the Swedish team of Noreen and Noreen 7-5 to win the championship. Our first guest this week is Brett Gallant, the second for Team Gushu, who won their second Grand Slam of the season with their victory over Team Adin in the final at the Masters on the weekend. Brett, I wanted to start by getting your impressions of the final at the Masters Grand Slam this weekend in Lloydminster that your team won over Team Adin. The first half of the game certainly looked like a grind, although you seemed to take control a little with your three-ender in the fifth end. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a very close game. Just kind of when we, when we play that team, you, you know you're you're not going to get a whole lot of chances, but you just kind of have to be patient and um, just try to generate some twos when you have when you had last rock. So we were able to do that pretty well. Um, in the first end, we had a we had a really tough draw for for two, uh, which we just missed, and then um, and then after that, we were able to generate two or more with hammer each end, and that was kind of. Um, the difference we were able to force them a couple times and and get our two or more with the hammer. So I think that was uh, you know, we were patient and and we you know generated a few chances and uh, you know Brad came up with some really nice shots to uh, take advantage of them. Do you find yourself able to relax a little bit when you take a three or four point lead against a team like a team of Dean or is there big shot ability always at the back of your mind? Yeah, they're uh, you definitely can't let your foot off the gas against them. Um, they have a, they have that big weight weapon too, so. You know, if, if you leave a lot of rocks in play, they can they can make a lot of them disappear. Um, you know, one or two shots. So 
you always have to be kind of cognizant of the angles when you're playing a team like that and, and just uh, and try to limit their rocks and play, to be honest, and uh, just um, not give them the opportunity for a big end. At the elite level, you play the same teams quite a bit. Is there any way to tweak your strategy or change something to provide the element of surprise against any of these teams you play against frequently, or do you stick to what you do best and hope that you simply out-execute the other team? Yeah, exactly. Our, our strategy, you know, isn't changing too much no matter who we're playing, whether it's a Dean or a team like Cooey or Jacobs. Uh, it's pretty well the same strategy, but it does come down to execution, just um, figuring out the ice, uh, what it's doing that particular day, and and getting a good handle on the rocks. Um, we really liked their set of rocks we used yesterday in the final. Um, Brad had a pair that uh, ended up curling a little bit more, and uh, we were able to use them to our advantage a couple times. So, um, But we had a really good comfort level with the rocks and the ice. So, you know, We kind of got a better handle on it as the week went on, and by the time the playoffs rolled around, we were pretty comfortable with it. So you know, I just think we we did our normal game plan, and, and we just uh, – cut onto the rocks and the ice uh, maybe just a little bit quicker than they did. The ability to read the ice or any possible changes from game to game in an event is what often separates the great teams from the good teams, and your team seems to adapt really quickly to the ice. How long does it typically take you to get a firm handle on the ice during a game or at an event? And you usually get a pretty good idea even even right after the practice is uh, just finished, you know, if the ice has changed from, from the day before. Usually the from day to day the, the ice is very similar, but um, the ice in the morning might be a little bit faster than as it goes along throughout the day. So we had a lot of evening draws during the slam, and um, you know the ice was maybe a little bit slower for, for some of our games. So then we got a we got a morning game in the playoffs. So we just had to had to remember that it was probably going to be a little bit keener that that game. And uh, so you're always kind of looking for things like that. But uh, generally, this the slams, the ice is pretty consistent draw to draw. It's just just the you know, figuring out your rocks. They're they're all pretty good pretty good sets, but they have their little. Uh, idiosyncrasies that you, uh, you kind of, as a team you kind of figure out. And finally, Brett, from the outside looking in, it certainly looks like your team has been in the zone for most of this season. But during an interview that Brad gave following the final in Lloyd Minster at the Grand Slam, he indicated that you still had a few technical things to work on as you lead into the next Grand Slam and then ultimately the Olympic trials in Ottawa in December. Honestly, the, the start of this season, um, you know, our record might be slightly better than... than how we've been playing um we've, we've had to scrap it a lot of close games and you know a, a lot of the games we've been tooth and nail just just trying to get to get the win so we've had a really good record um but our play hasn't been quite as consistent as we'd like it but uh, that being said you know it's, it's still nice to be able to pull some of these games out and maybe we don't have our best stuff but um you know making some timely shots and i think just as a team we got a lot of confidence in each other right now that uh you know in the in the big moments that um you know, things are going to go <laughs> give Brad that shot to win. And, and you know, if, uh, Jeff and I feel pretty comfortable sweeping it and, and Mark with the line. So we think we're all just uh, happy with our roles right now and, um, you know, working together well. And I think we're getting, maybe getting the most out of each other. Even if we're not uh, individually firing on all cylinders, we're, we're getting the best out of each other. Our guest on the road to the trial series this week is Steve Laycock, who had to make an unexpected lineup change late last season, replacing Colton Flash at second with two-time Canadian junior champion Matt Dunstone. Laycock joined us to discuss the lineup change, how his team has worked to gel quickly as a unit with the trials looming in December, and he provides a series of interesting takes on topics that are currently at the forefront in the world of curling. 
Steve, you are known for being one of the more analytical teams on the World Curling Tour. What have the analytics been showing this season? What is the data showing, and is there anything that your team is working on to help turn the tide a little in the weeks leading up to the trials, or is it simply a case of a missed shot here and there that have kept your team from having a better start to the season from a results perspective? I think it's probably the latter you just mentioned, where we've actually at times played really good so far this year. It's just getting eight shots in end in a key end or getting that that big shot to finish off an end or that big shot to set up a deuce or to set up the force have just been um, more times than not, not quite getting that where we need it to be, and other teams have played pretty well against us. So, I mean, it's a, it's a bad combination when you're looking for uh, consistent play to have that going on right now, but I'd much rather have that happening now than obviously a month from now. Some have suggested that you might have benefited from adding an event or two to your early season schedule, especially after the slow start in the hope of getting your mojo back after the slow start. But from what you're saying, you're close to being in top form. It's simply a moment or two in each game that is making the difference at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a little bit of both. You don't uh, start a season with a below 500 record with the quality of team we have if uh, you're playing at your potential and just getting bad breaks. I mean, obviously, we need to play a little bit better as well. That's part of the equation. And recently, I mean, any time that's not going well, it's a combination of things. It's never just one thing. I think we've been working a little bit on uh, just getting our communication, the team dynamics uh, going, and um, and that part's improved. But uh, the rock throwing part needs to just get a little bit better now, too. And luckily, that's what we've kind of booked most of November off to do is just spend a ton of time practicing instead of competing. So um, I think that part will come, and I think we've been learning a lot about ourselves this first little bit uh, through these struggles as well. In the lineup change that occurred late last season, you added Matt Dunstone, a very solid player who twice won the Canadian Juniors as a skip. Now, many people have said that it takes a while for a team to gel after a lineup change. What are some of the things that you worked on with Matt both in the offseason and early this season to try and expedite that process with so little time between his addition to the team and the start of the Olympic trials? Yeah, I mean, anytime you have a lineup change, you try and make the new lineup work as quick as you can, but uh, in some cases you can do some things to make it work quicker, but in some cases you it is just kind of the learn-as-you-go thing. I think some of the big ones, I mean, we got uh, a couple guys actually in different roles. So Kirk uh, is now sweeping my shots, uh, so that's a new thing for him. He'd been in the house with me, even though he's still playing third. Uh, that part hasn't changed, but uh, uh, the sweeping being more of like the front-end uh, mentality, that's a new thing for him that he's still adapting to but doing pretty good at. And uh, for Matt, a big one, and I know – I definitely felt that when I went from skip to lead and finishing juniors is you got to think about your shots a little bit differently. When you're a skip, it's kind of all or nothing and put the rock on the dots. But um, when you're not skipping, you got to think about what you're leaving and what you're building to progress the end. And uh, sometimes two feet short is 150% better than two feet heavy. And when you're a skip, sometimes it really doesn't matter one way or the other. It's got to be made. So uh, that's one thing that I think we've gotten a little bit better at as well. But And this is the communication. Obviously, you have a new player and what people want to hear, what they don't want to hear, what information they need, what's too much information that might make them overthink. So that's all stuff we're working on right now. Adding a player of Matt Dunstone's ability is obviously not a bad thing, but having to make an unexpected lineup change so late in the Olympic cycle must have had an impact on the remaining members of your team. How long did it take for the team to wrap their heads around the fact that they would have to adapt quickly to a new team dynamic with the Olympic trials looming some three months into the season? Yeah, I mean, never. there's never a great time for it to happen, but obviously right before 
the end of last season when we were just about to uh, close in on securing our trial spot wasn't uh, ideal timing. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we had built over the last three or four years where we were just finally starting to get stuff clicking pretty good, and we'd had a couple pretty successful seasons. So uh, in some ways it is a little bit uh, back to basics and back to building, which uh, typically you'd want to be just kind of maintaining what you've built this time of uh, the trials process, but I mean that's not the situation we're in, and we're. Uh, but I do see us uh, having a great opportunity to trend upwards here. You played in the 2009 Olympic trials as lead for Pat Simmons. Uh, people described the trials as a different animal than even the Briar or the Canada Cup, because in many cases teams were created at the start of the Olympic cycle with the core objective of qualifying for and winning the Olympic trials. Can you possibly describe the atmosphere at a Canadian trials compared to what players might experience at a Briar or a Canada Cup? Yeah, for sure. There's a difference between the trials and the briar. Like, I mean, some of it is the mentality people create for it themselves or the extra pressure they put on themselves. But I think it really boils down to the once-every-four-year aspect of it. Briar, I mean, that's once a year, and you go through your playdowns, and there's a little more urgency of that. And the other end of the spectrum is uh, some of the World Killing Tour events where if you go have a bad weekend, it's like, well, okay, well, the next one starts in four days. So you shake it off and get back out there. There isn't a, a, that, that, that coping mechanism when uh, a trial doesn't go well because it's literally a four-year wait for the next one. So I think that's a lot of where that mentality is different. And the trials are a fairly new thing. I mean, we weren't an Olympic sport until uh, 1998. So the whole idea of going through an Olympic trials, um, that event itself is only uh, 20 years old. And whereas Breyer has got the 100 years of tradition and kind of that party mentality for the fans, uh, the trial is a little more serious event. It just seems like even the people in the crowd are not quite sure how they should be uh, acting out there, too. It's, just, it's, it's a lot more uh, intense, for sure. Over the past decade or more, you've played against all of the top Canadian players. Have you noticed a difference in some of them at the trials where you can almost see that they are more wound up than they usually are and feeling the pressure of the Olympic trials? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, uh saw it uh, firsthand, the one in 2009. I've seen it in... Um, I guess all the trials, because I watched them all the way back to when they were first happy in 97. So it seems like if you have a nine-team field, it seems like three teams beat themselves before they even show up, just from the uh, mentality they bring into it or just how wound up they get, like you like you put it. And you're going to have three teams probably that just absolutely excel in the situation. And you're going to have some teams that are kind of finding their way through it and end up in the middle of the pack. So... Um, hopefully we can uh, be one of the ones that find that way to bring our elite performance that week. How difficult is it to compartmentalize the trials in the weeks and months prior so that it does not impede your performance or your routine at other events such as the Slams and other World Curling Tour events? Well, you just use the exact word, uh, compartmentalize or break it off into small segments. Like You don't have uh, complete control over the result. You only control your own performance. And the best way to have a good performance is to perform well in the next 30 seconds that you're about to uh, be a part of. So every shot, break it down into that segment. And what are the processes you would follow normally in a shot to help it be successful? And just do that time after time after time. And you've got to get back to that focus and refocus each time, not thinking and of the outcome. Because obviously, uh, the more you do that, the more pressure you put on yourself. And you're not thinking about the processes that help you make the shot. Speaking of the process, that seems to be a big buzzword in curling these days for teams during individual events and even for an entire season. The process tends to mean different things for different teams. Without giving up any state secrets here, what does the process look like for Team Laycock? 
Well, I guess there's uh, two sides to that. I mean, the process, I mean, when we think about that, we're thinking about everyone's role on the shots, whether that's uh, going through your pre-shot routine to make sure you um, have done everything lining up and knowing what weight you're going to be throwing and having the right information from the sweepers and having paid attention to what the sheet's been doing that game. I mean, that's part of process. And as a sweeper, knowing uh, what the shot's called is, what the tolerance is, and um, what the ice has been doing, I mean, that's all part of process. But if you get a little bit away from that into um, kind of the bits and segments that are going to make up a win at the trials, I mean, obviously it doesn't take a, a huge statistician to figure out getting hammered to start the games before and that uh, pregame draw is going to give you a better chance. And being able to score deuces and not give up steals and to get forces when you don't have hammer, I mean, those are the, the obviously the outcome uh, end goals. And uh, I think if you take care of all uh, those pieces, uh, your chances to win go way higher. I mean, it's not rocket science, and I don't think I'm giving away any secrets when I say that. I have a few quick-fire questions for you, Steve. Uh, you're not only an elite curler, but also a fan and keen observer of the sport. With the pre-trials coming up in a week or so, what teams will you be paying close attention to at the pre-trials? Well, I think I'll be watching with interest for a few teams for sure. So uh, Colton Flash, still good friends with him um, from being teammates for the last few years, and they've gotten off to a pretty good start. And uh, be interested to see how they will do in that environment because for a, a few of the guys on the team, it'll be a new experience. So I'm interested to see how they do. Pat Simmons, former teammate, playing with Matt's old teammates. So it'll be an interesting one. They've gotten off to a pretty good start. Um, then you got some of the more veteran teams in the group, so like the Jim Cotter, John Morris combination that have had a lot of success. And obviously Glenn Howard, uh, never count him out. Had a, a little bit slower a couple seasons, but he's still showing it great at uh, times. He can still be the the player he's been his whole career. So I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple other uh, really good teams that are there. But I mean, there's Definitely going to be some great competition. In the trials, it will be Team Holman that will be playing in the Olympic trials in their own backyard. How do you think they will handle the additional pressure and attention they will receive playing so close to home in such an important event for them? Uh, that can definitely be a positive for them. They're going to have a ton of crowd support and a lot of energy if things are going well. I think the, there's enough pressure for them being the favorites in the trials process with how dominant they've been the last few years. Uh, I'm not sure it being at home is going to make that any worse or better than it already would. So it's really going to be uh, up to them. The one thing, there's a lot of parity in ladies curling, especially this year, where um, it seems a lot of teams are able to beat them where previous years they hadn't been able to. So, But I would say they're one of those teams still where if they play what they're capable of, there would be very few teams that can match up to them. So it's really... They have a lot of it under their control, I would say. The World Curling Federation recently announced the World Series of Curling, which in addition to the Seven Slams, the upcoming Champion Series events in Europe, the Canada Cup, the Provincials, and in some cases, the Briar and Scotties, will mean that elite teams might end up playing as many as 17 or 18 events in a season. Do you feel that the powers that be should get together and create a schedule that will allow teams to play in these events while also providing sufficient rest periods for the elite teams in the hope of avoiding some of the overuse injuries that have become more and more common in curling over the past season or two? Yeah, and probably even more than that, really, because people are already playing with the Grand Slams, probably, let's say, four or five tour events in addition to that. Then you add in uh, however many steps of playdowns you're lucky enough to get through. So for most people, it's uh, at that level, there's direct spots of provincials now, so at least you're not doing like the regions and zones like it used to be. But And then if you get to that truly elite level, you're doing things like the Skins game, the Continental Cup, 
And you haven't even mentioned yet that a lot of these people are doing double duty with mixed doubles. So you could literally be playing every weekend. And that's one thing I think you have to be pretty cautious of about how I think the events themselves, and there's only so many weekends, even if you went year-round, there's only so many weekends. And it's a great problem for curling to have right now. But I think if you look at some of the ranking systems or how people qualify for uh, some of these events or for some of the funding that might be available, that's where they're going to have to be careful about it because um, right now you can count eight events in a season. It used to be you could just play eight events and the top teams would usually make playoffs in all eight, but with a lot of the parity that's come into curling, um, even the top teams can't guarantee they're going to do that. And then if you're also going to have people need to maintain a, a ranking mixed doubles for the people that are doing that too, like you basically just would have to be curling nonstop in order to uh, keep yourself at the top of the heap of all those. So I think that's uh, one thing for sure would be the ranking system. And just I don't know if it's switching to more of like a rolling average versus just stacking up as many points as you can might be the solution. But, yeah, there's definitely uh, some huge consideration there because there definitely comes a point where playing too much is playing too much, and it's not for the betterment of uh, the athletes, for sure. And finally, Steve, I realize that it's a bit of a cliché question, but what would it mean for you and the team to represent Canada at the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang? That would be absolutely thrilling, uh, especially for our team. We've been knocking on the door in a lot of those major events for a few years now and haven't had that big breakthrough win at the, the national level, so that would be huge for us and couldn't come at a better time, obviously, for the, the biggest event we'll ever play in uh, as this group. So hopefully we can do that, and that would be fantastic. And if not, I guess we'll have to lick our wounds and think about uh, some other stuff that's upcoming this year because, as you mentioned earlier, our silver medal this year would be uh, to make that briar run and, and play in our home province. That would be pretty neat as well. It's now time for this week's Fresh Pebble, your news and notes from the world of curling. The Pacific Asia Championships start later this week in Australia. Among the favourites in the men's event are Korea, led by Skip Chan-Ming Kim, who have had a solid start to their season on the World Curling Tour and are currently ranked 25th in the world, and defending champions Team Morizumi of Japan. Both these teams will also represent their countries at the Olympics in February. The sentimental favourites in the men's event will be Australia, skipped by Hugh Milliken, who will be playing in the event for the 24th time. The favorites in the women's event will be the same two countries, with Unjung Kim and her 20th ranked team from Korea looking to defend their title, while the 28th ranked team Fujisawa of Japan will look to improve on their third place finish at last season's Pacific Asia Championship, with both Team Kim and Team Fujisawa also representing their countries at the upcoming Winter Olympics. Other countries participating in the Pacific Asia Championship will be China, Hong Kong, New Zealand and the host Australians in the women's event and China, Hong Kong, Kazakhstan, New Zealand, Qatar and Chinese Taipei in the men's event. Last week, CBC Sports and Curling Canada announced that they have reached an agreement that will see more coverage than ever before of five national championship events made available through CBC Sports digital platforms in each of the next five seasons beginning this season. The five events included in the partnership are the Canadian Mixed Curling Championships, the Canadian Mixed Doubles Curling Championship, the Canadian Wheelchair Curling Championship, the Everest Canadian Senior Curling Championships, and the U-Sport Curling Canada University Curling Championship and Canadian Collegiate Athletic Association Curling Canada Championships. The first event to be covered by CBC Sports as part of this new partnership will be the 2018 Canadian Mixed Curling Championship in Swan River, Manitoba, scheduled for November 12th to the 18th. 
Beginning Monday, November 13th, each draw will be available via live streaming coverage at cbcsports.ca and on the CBC Sports app. Our feature interview this week is with Catherine Henderson, the CEO of Curling Canada. We cover a range of topics including how Curling Canada is looking to leverage the increased visibility created by the Olympics, we discuss some of the recent announcements made by the World Curling Federation, and we look ahead at some of Curling Canada's priorities for the 2022 Olympic cycle. Kathy, many curling fans seem to be of the belief that Curling Canada's role when it comes to our Olympic participation in the sport essentially starts and ends with the pre-trials and trials, but there is so much more involved. I was wondering if you could provide a brief overview of how involved Curling Canada is in supporting our teams not only prior to the trials, but especially during that period between the trials and the Olympic Games. Well, I mean, curling is a, is a very interesting sport in how we select our Olympic teams and Paralympic teams. And it's a little bit different, uh, and uh, we're probably uh, unique in the fact that we are able to sell tickets and create events out of pre-trials and trials. As you are probably aware, I mean, teams uh, you know, will begin training for the next Olympic quadrennial basically on February the 27th after the closing ceremonies, and they'll spend the next four years uh, working, uh, working uh, with our coaches, with our, uh, you know, with our um, support people, uh, and with our high-performance people preparing themselves on an ongoing basis. So we don't actually have a lengthy period of time between our trials and the Olympic Games, and the, um, but uh, during that time, um, we do have uh, our national team coaches. Uh, we have national team support. Uh, we have high-performance director with uh, programs that will be working with those curlers uh, during that time to make sure that they are prepping themselves not only to play podium type of performances, but also prepping them. Um, going to a, a multi-sport games is very different, and, and you do have to spend time with the curlers, uh, understanding that they're going to be in a village, for example. They are going to be spending lots of time with Team Canada athletes uh, who, who you know, are, are involved in different sports, so this is, this is unusual. You're not spending all your time with curlers that there's quite a number of expectations about what athletes are expected to do when they arrive at the Olympic Games in terms of participation in, in uh, ceremonies and athlete parades and those sorts of things. So it isn't just working with them on the curling, but it is working with them on what they're going to experience when they are curling in an entirely different environment than, than one they're used to. I've had the opportunity to interview a number of players, coaches, and administrators from different curling countries, and they attach so much importance to the Olympics because qualifying for the Games and doing well there often means more funding for their programs and for the growth of the sport in their countries. Can you provide some insight on if and how good results, specifically podium finishes, benefits Curling Canada when it comes to receiving additional funding from organizations such as the Canadian Olympic Committee and or On the Podium? Well, uh, I will tell you On the Podium, Podium and in partnership with the Canadian Olympic Committee and Sport Canada um, provides uh, winter sport, well, all sport, but in our in our particular case, with targeted funding, and that targeting is is based on um, uh, an analysis of the potential that you have to be able to get up on a podium at an Olympic Games and medal, and uh, depending on that ability, currently and actually in the future, that is how those investment decisions are made. And so um, when on the podium, the Canadian Olympic Committee and Sport Canada deliver money to us for podium performance type of funding, it's, it's very targeted. Uh, we, we have to come to a, 
an agreement on exactly what it is that we are going to be spending that on. And we also have to come to an agreement on what we believe the outcomes will be. Uh, and again, starting on February 27th, we take a little bit of a breather. And after the Olympic Games, we will sit down with On the Podium, Sport Canada, uh, and, and the Canadian Olympic Committee, and actually the Canadian Paralympic Committee. After the 17th of March, we will be sitting with them and analyzing our performance, where we invested, what the outcomes were, and we will begin planning for the next quadrennial. In an interview I recently did with Colin Grahamslaw of the World Curling Federation, he mentioned that every four years, the Olympics provide the sport with access to an audience that it would otherwise not be able to reach on its own. Despite the fact that curling is one of the more popular winter sports in Canada, I'm wondering how Curling Canada might be planning on leveraging the additional attention the sport will get during the Olympics. So, so we do get quite a bit of additional uh, attention, and curling is actually the most watched Olympic sport in in Canada. Just just given there's a lot of it, <laughs> so it, it goes on. Uh, there's there's just many 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 hours of it uh, in which Team Canada is is competing. And what we do, and we do this in partnership with our member associations, is um, we are working. Uh, what, what we know in you know past behavior will say this is going to happen again is right after an Olympic Games, it is our clubs that begin to receive multiple messages and multiple reach-outs from people who have perhaps never really seen the sport before or understood it, who want to know more about it. They want to they want to join leagues. They want to learn how to curl. And there is always a, a very large uptick of that happening. What we do and what we are doing um, with our member associations is working with them to, to prepare clubs uh, uh, in those member associations, there's 916 of them in in Canada that uh, that are part of our uh, part of our members members, uh, and we are working with them on marketing plans, outreach, and and what we just call Olympic preparation, which is really the ability in that short period of time where interest is high to take advantage of that, having people come into the club and be prepared to be able to have open houses and demonstrations and learn to curls and on-ice activities so that we can get more people playing. And you're absolutely right. This is the one time that you are appealing to people that are not curling fanatics uh, who may have not you know, noticed the sport before, and then they, they, they show up with a high degree of, of interest, and we try to get the clubs to um, – well, we try to get our members to work with their clubs to strike while the, while the iron is hot. With the recent announcement by the World Curling Federation that it will be launching the World Series of Curling, several people have called for the quote-unquote powers that be, such as the World Curling Federation, the World Curling Tour, the Grand Slam of Curling, Curling Canada, and other national associations to get together and create a schedule that works for everyone by avoiding scheduling conflicts and by allowing players enough time to rest between major events in the hope of limiting the type of overuse injuries we've seen over the past couple of seasons. Is that something that is on the horizon? Has there been movement to bring representatives from all of these groups to the table and establish a schedule that works for everyone, including the players. I will tell you, I was recently at the World Curling Federation, and I would say there's not a stakeholder that was sitting around that table that doesn't have that very same uh, issue. And the commitment that uh, the World Curling Federation made with all of their members, uh, including Curling Canada, is that um, before this tour is announced and before the actual schedules, you know, we start to get all the details is that they will meet with all the stakeholders uh, to discuss exactly the issues that you've laid out on the table because, you know, it, it benefits nobody um, if we have exhausted, um, uh, injured curlers that, that you know, it, it doesn't benefit anyone. And I think everyone realizes that. 
uh, I think, you know, what, what we're going to have to do is everyone's going to have to sit down at the table and, you know, lay out their cards and talk about what's needed in the sport, um, you know, what the priorities are in the sport, how we grow things in the sport, and then with that, make some decisions coming from there. But there is a strong commitment from the World Curling Federation to its members, and we in turn have those commitments to our athletes uh, to be able to sit down and really discuss this and make sure that we are... Um, we're doing what's right by the sport. Uh, we're doing what's right by our, you know, our stakeholders, and we're certainly doing what's right um, by the athletes. The sport of curling will soon be starting a new Olympic cycle with an eye towards 2022 in Beijing, and many of the National Curling Federations plan around those cycles, at least at the elite level. Is that the case for Curling Canada? And if so, what are some of the top priorities for your organization heading into the next Olympic cycle? Yeah, that's a great question because that's something that. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, um, the, the planning that's gone into 2018 started back uh, in 2014 right after Sochi. So we're really at the tail end of our plan. And right now it's just really a matter of implementing. Uh, the things that we're looking forward to is, I mean, first of all, uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, how up you are on sort of the area of sport funding, but there's been a real movement. There's been quite a bit of studying by Sport Canada, OTP, uh, and the federations um, around you know, how do you invest and how do you achieve the results uh, that you're looking for as a nation? A, a nation, you know, particularly Canada, that is quite strong in winter sport. And really where, um, you know, where I would say the members, are, you know, when I'm talking about the members, I'm talking about the various winter sports that I identified back, is that uh, we need to begin investing in what we call next generation athletes. And those are athletes that have podium potential probably five to eight years down the road. And um, we are... Um, you know, we've done that in curling. I, I would doubt that there's a 13 or 14 or 15-year-old um, that's out there right now that has podium potential that our team would not be aware of. But in the meantime, um, you know, w what we've struggled with is, is just the ability to fund, you know, uh, to fund some incremental things to make sure that Canada is, you know, continuing to be able to invest behind excellence in the sport. So I think, you know, what you will see is probably a longer arc of time that we'll be taking a look at in terms of prepping for the Olympic Games in Beijing. And we will be looking at a group of athletes, not just for the uh, athletes in Beijing, but for the athletes that will be competing in 2026 along with them. And I think that's, that's what you'll probably see um, uh, us beginning to, to, to prep for, is a larger pool of athletes over a longer arc of time. This is your first Olympic season as the CEO of Curling Canada. What are you most looking forward to, both in Summerside for the pre-trials and Ottawa for the trials? Of course, we've got uh, we've got mixed doubles as well. So I, you know, I do want to mention that I've got a lot of pre-trials and trials um, that that I need to concern myself with. You know, I think I think the thing that I'm really looking forward to, not just as a CEO but as a as a fan, is that's really when the excitement starts. Um, you know, as as we talked uh, earlier. We have a very unique way of selecting our Olympic teams, and, um, uh, and and the way that we do it creates a lot of interest and it creates a lot of momentum behind those teams. Uh, and you know, we know when those teams get there, I mean, they are fighting for something that most of them have wanted almost their entire lives. So you know, the the excitement is high, the stakes are quite high, the audiences are highly, highly, highly engaged. I mean, each one of these. Every one of these draws is going to have meaning for everybody. And, you know, this is an opportunity as well, I mean, just to, to start to get to know the, uh, the teams that are going to be representing Canada at the Olympic Games. So, you know, I'm really excited to sort of ignite that, uh, that, that Olympic spirit that I think is really going to happen. I love Olympic Games, and I have lots of fun 
uh, at them, and uh, I love the athletes that, that participate in them, and so I think that's what I'm looking the most forward to. I've asked you a variation of this question each time I've done an interview with you, uh, but as the sport of curling continues to grow in popularity in many countries, how could Curling Canada and other curling stakeholders better market the sport to help it rebound at the club level where it still struggles in many regions of the country? It's a great question, and I think it's one that, you know, I, I, I... I think about constantly. I think we've done some really neat things this year, Frank. I will tell you that curling actually is growing, uh, and it, in particular it's growing at the 12 uh, to 17-year-old uh, age group. Uh, so I'm going to talk about uh, maybe just get a little bit more specific, but I think that there's three programs I can point to, but I want these to be indicative of the types of things that Curling Canada does on an ongoing basis to be able to help clubs. And, um, uh, and and we do that by working in strong partnership with our provincial members because the clubs are actually the purview of the of the provincial members. So uh, Curl On or Curl Manitoba or Curl, you know, Curl PEI, um, those are the people that we work with, those, those operations and governance people. I think you know, the first thing that, that we do is we have to keep the sport healthy and sustainable over uh, many, many years. And there's sort of two areas that, that, that we're working in. One is really introducing the sport to as many children as we can. And last year we introduced the sport to over 200,000 kids through a Rocks and Rings program, our partnership there, in the school, which allows kids to experience curling on the gym floor. Uh, and the question, of course, when I started was, and I had the same question, is how do you get them onto the ice? And uh, what we did is we worked on a program last year called Curling 101, and we piloted it in a number of clubs. And what we ended up with is getting many kids into the clubs uh, with a marketing um, kind of program that introduces the sport of curling to them uh, on ice in a very fun, very highly engaging way. And what we were finding is, is that about between 18 and 30 percent, depending on the region, these kids were actually joining leagues and they were signing up to curl once we got them onto the ice. So uh, we're looking to expand that program because we know it works. Uh, it was piloted last year and we are bringing it to many, many more clubs this year. In addition to that, we've been working with one of our employees is, um, named uh, uh, Helen Radford that many of you will know as, a, as an elite coach for juniors, but she is also uh, a professional in the area of develop uh, a feeder system, really, which takes children from you know um, the, the very beginning, from the first moment they step onto the ice, and um, and, and pulling them through um, uh, you know a stream uh, um, and, a, and a set of steps. The way you you know, and it's it's really it's curling development, and um, we are piloting a number of different. Um, programs this year in our provinces to make sure that once children decide that they do want to curl is that we have the programs and services that are available uh, to them at clubs and that they're available for clubs so that those kids either there's, there's really two pathways you can take you can take a curling for life which is what 99.9 percent .9 of us are you know uh, curlers for life uh, and then there's those few special kids that uh, uh, can be identified um, fairly early as uh, you know, potential podium athletes. And uh, we just make sure that we've got programs and progression and the right training tools and the right training techniques and, and the, the, the properly trained coaches available for them. So those are things that we do at that level. Um, this year we also piloted a program, and it was very successful, using non-traditional media um, to get uh, people into clubs that had open spots in their uh, Learn to Curl programs. 
and it was done um, by some, I would call it hyper-local geo-targeting around clubs that had some very specific uh, uh, programs that were still open, and we were able to help them fill those programs with a social media campaign. And again, uh, Curling Canada tested it and piloted it, and now we've packaged it up, and it is available for our members, you know, our provinces and territories, to be able to distribute and work with their clubs in order to bring people into the clubs. Uh, so we do that. Of course, you know, the third one, I think, is our season of champions. Uh, is always a, uh, that, that's a huge, I mean, 310 hours of curling uh, on television every year is a huge marketing, it's at least a platform for us, but we've developed new creative uh, and new ways of advertising to people that allows them to pull into our, our website and find a club that's, that's nearby them, so we are helping with that. Uh, and then the other thing that we're taking a look at, and we actually did some research on, Frank, last year, and we're starting to put into uh, a test is to uh, introduce curling in, in, uh, to people that are new to Canada and perhaps have come from a place where ice sports, they're just not familiar with them. And that's very different from sort of knowing what it is and not have trying to it. But, you know, these are the people who really don't understand what curling is. And we're trying a number of uh, 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 different pilots this year to be able to look at people who've come from places where ice sports are perhaps not very top of mind and introduce them to curling in a way that makes them safe and comfortable and it's really fun and, and friendly. And so we, you know, we're doing a number of things like that and we'll see how that works out and we'll roll it out. The one thing that I can say though is you know, curling is a growing sport right now. Curling Canada recently announced that in 2019, Brandon Manitoba will host its first bar since 1982. The announcement came on the heels of a successful 2017 briar in St. John's, Newfoundland. Is this a sign that Curling Canada might be looking at hosting the briar in smaller cities on a more frequent basis in the coming years? Yeah, I wouldn't read too many signals into this, but I think what Curling Canada, the one signal that I would like communities out there is that we are absolutely open to partnership and business um, with cities that we think have the curling base, They've got the facilities, and they've got the uh, they've got the org- organizations, uh, and and really the commitment to work with us. So, be it a, a large city or a small city, now, you know, I've been in Ottawa and I've been in Edmonton, but I've also been in St. John and St. John's, and uh, and I was out uh, um, uh, visiting Brandon uh, before their, their their bid was was put in, and I, I I would say it's not really a signal that we are. We've got a strategy about moving to smaller centers. That's not it at all. It's that we are we are open to considering cities that maybe in the past would not have been considered. And uh, we, uh, I think, uh, St. John's. Uh, you know, I've got to hand it to them that um, they knocked it out of the park. Uh, it brought tremendous benefit to them. We did a economic impact study with them, and it was it was huge. They they you know, it was a sellout crowd. Um, it, it was packed in the patch every night. But I think all the local businesses and hotels and restaurants and everything really benefited from it as well. So we are seeing that sport tourism is something that some of the probably the mid-sized cities are beginning to look at a place and carve out some real skills and capabilities there. And uh, and we are, we'd be very happy to consider anyone that wants to come to us with a really, really good bid and a good package. Over the summer, there was some controversy in the curling community when cable companies identified curling clubs as sports bars, which meant a significant increase in their monthly cable bills. Curling Canada took a pretty public stance in support of the clubs, despite your long-standing partnership with TSN that is owned by one of the cable companies in question. With a number of clubs just starting their season as we speak, can you provide an update on that particular situation? Absolutely. You know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. I mean, that's 
that is a delicate situation because we have a very uh, a, a very good partnership actually with both the cable companies. Um, uh, you know, we, we very much respect, uh, of course, what TSN does for us this season of champions, and they've been partners with us for many, many, many years. Uh, but really, I mean, at the, at, at the time, uh, it was our members who had been speaking with their clubs, and this is something that our membership came to us, and they asked us if we could help facilitate a really good, honest conversation with those cable companies about the effects that this was going to have. And I absolutely respect what TSA, or sorry, what Bell and Rogers um, need to do in order to run their business. And I think there was probably some unintended consequences, you know, with this particular move. But I will say, uh, once we made them aware of the situation, what the concerns were of our members, both of them willingly sat down, had a conversation with us, understood the situation, and of course took some action. Uh, I'm under a confidentiality agreement about what that actual action is, but I will tell you that um, both of them were very eager to, to find solutions for us, and they were solutions that were certainly uh, welcomed by the curling community. And I think you know they should be thanked. Uh, on behalf of curlers everywhere, they listened to concerns and the concerns of their fans and their viewers, and then they um, they did something about it. So the update, I think, is that um, there's going to be a lot of curlers in curling clubs and, and curling centers. Uh, this year, that will be able after their curling uh, after their their uh, curling game is finished, are going to be able to sit down, have a beer, and watch the end of um, uh, of a game or a draw, or something that they traditionally enjoyed there. And finally, Kathy, when we first spoke shortly after you had accepted the position of CEO at Curling Canada, you mentioned that you had just started curling in a league in Toronto. Have you made your first double takeout yet, on purpose? Well, see, I wish you hadn't asked the second part of the question. Uh, I could probably honestly say, yes, I've made a double takeout, but it hasn't been on purpose. Uh, I, I will tell you, I'm really enjoying myself right now. I actually went from curling once a week to curling twice a week. Um, I'm having lots of fun. I've had a couple of really great skips, um, and I've been able to uh, meet some really, really wonderful people, and uh, and I'm having a blast. So I, um, I'm, having, I'm having lots of fun, but I will say, um, I have to keep the location under wraps for right now because I'm still learning and I don't want to show up on social media uh, uh, with the Curling Canada logo anywhere near me. And that does it for episode 13 of the From the Hack podcast. My thanks to all of our guests. Join us next week for more interviews with some of the key personalities from the world of curling. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FromTheHack, and also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.